for reading. John 5 and verse 17 is on page 1064 of the Bible. So John 5 and verse 17. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, that is to John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I'll stop there. We also have this evening, congregation, the instruction of our catechism, which again you can find on the outline that I've given you there. We've come to question and answer number 19. 
Last, uh, the last catechism service that we had, uh, we considered uh, who then is that mediator who is both God and man in one person. And you remember the answer was the Lord Jesus Christ. But then the question that we have this evening is how do you come to know this? And the answer given us is the Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. So far our catechism. Now you'll recall, dear friends, that this is now the second time that our instructor has asked us, how do you come to know this? And it's good to remember the first time he asked that question because you'll remember that it was talking about the misery of man. And the question was, how do you come to know your misery? And the, and the answer was, out of the law of God. And so we have law and gospel, isn't it? Because the law showed us our misery. Why? Because the law showed us our sin. And sin is the cause of misery. But now we come to this happy place in the catechism where again the question comes, how do you come to know this? That is, how do you come to know this mediator who can bring together a holy God and a guilty people? And the question is, the whole, or the answer is, the holy gospel. And so we have had now in our catechism instruction, as we walk along this path of life, as we're calling it, we've had now law and gospel. And that is the message of God's word, isn't it? Law and gospel. So how do you come to know the mediator? And the answer is the gospel. Now our question and answer this evening also tells us very clearly that God revealed the gospel and the truth of the gospel progressively. He, re he revealed it much the way that you would uh, read a book uh, where one chapter would open up after another, right? And one side of the truth would be revealed to you. And then another side. And as you made your way through the book, it would slowly come to have its, its full picture of whatever that story was about. And now the same truth when it comes to the story of the gospel, the story of this mediator, the story of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God came progressively. He came in a, in a gradual way. He didn't unleash the full truth all at once. But in a, in a timely way, He revealed the gospel to His people. And that's why I've entitled the sermon this evening, The Gospel Timeline. Because there is a timeline in how God reveals the truth about the mediator to his people. And we read that in scripture. Adam did not know as much about the gospel as Moses did. Moses did not know as much as David did. David did not know as much as John the Baptist did. And John the Baptist is the last man of the old dispensation. Of the old covenant, we might say. And finally, the Lord Jesus Christ comes. But it came progressively. Now you ask me, why did God choose to do that? And I love it when I can say this as a pastor. I have no idea. I don't know. It's not told me in the scriptures. God in his sovereign wisdom saw fit to reveal the gospel in, these gradual, in this gradual way. And we don't understand why. At any rate then, we come to consider then the gospel timeline. This is what the catechism has revealed to us. Is it what scripture reveals to us? Does the scripture understand that the gospel was revealed in this way? And that's why I brought you to John chapter 5. 
Because when we read the Old Testament, we don't read explicitly of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't read about the mediator. But what does Jesus say about the Old Testament? Let's look at that question then in light of what we read from John 5. What did Jesus say about the Old Testament? Now look with me at John 5. And if you look there, you see that the problem is given us in verse 17 and 18. Because Jesus makes this comment after healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. He makes this comment, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Jesus always understood himself. He always portrays himself as being on a mission from God the Father. That he was sent by one on a mission. He had a mission to perform. We've spoken about that here many times. Jesus was on a mission. But he calls God his Father. And that, of course, is not something that the Jewish people can accept, right? And that's what you find in verse 18, that the Jewish leadership here is even seeking now to arrest him and to kill him because he made himself equal with God. Jesus made himself equal with God by speaking about God as his Father. So Jesus, on the one hand, has this claim that he needs to make good. He needs to demonstrate and to prove to these people that he is, that God is his Father, that he is on a mission from God the Father, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that the Old Testament Jewish people we're always looking for and expecting and waiting for. Jesus has to make that claim good to the people to whom he's ministering. But over here are the Jews who hear the claims of Jesus as blasphemy. And so they desire to put him to death. Now Jesus summons three witnesses to make good this claim. And the first witness, and actually you'll notice that the, the subheadings in our Bible kind of help us here, don't they? You have in verse 33, the subheading there is the witness of John. Now, notice if you back up to verse 31, Jesus even uh, rejects the idea that they would take his word for it. Notice in verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Isn't that interesting that Jesus said, if it was just me talking, if it was just me claiming this, then I wouldn't expect you to believe me. But I summon witnesses. I summon witnesses to defend the claim that I make. And my first witness then is John the baptizer. John the Baptist, as you remember from the New Testament, John the Baptist was the one that we considered two weeks ago, right? And the testimony of John the Baptist, what was it? Do you remember, children? What did John the Baptist say about Jesus? You remember he saw him coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the testimony of John. And now Jesus says, you heard what John the Baptist said. He testified that I am who I claim to be, that I am the Messiah. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you'll notice in verse 35 that Jesus even points out to the leadership that you too were quite fascinated with John the Baptist when he came. You too were quite intrigued with his message. You even sent messengers to John the Baptist to ask him who he was and what his ministry was and who he was proclaiming. Isn't that interesting how Jesus uses that? You kind of liked his message too. You heard him. And you remember what he testified about me. And that's the first witness I bring. In verse 35, Jesus says, He was a burning and shining light. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Why don't you accept then what he said about me? Witness number two. 
Now in our Bible here, we have verse 36 through 38, and it says the witness of works and the witness of the Father. Now I lump those two together for the simple reason that they are the same. And Jesus understands them to be the same. So in verse 36, Jesus says, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. So he says, I have a greater witness, that I, even, even greater than John the Baptist. And that is the works, and by works there we should understand the miracles, the miracles which Jesus performed. These are the works which God the Father has given me to accomplish. And here, do you remember uh, when Nicodemus, when Nicodemus came to Jesus, remember Nicodemus said to Jesus, he said, Rabbi, no one is able to do the works that you do unless God was with him. And that's the same idea that you have here. The Jewish people understood very well that when a man did a miracle, he was sent by God. Because only God could give a person the ability to do miracles. And so Jesus says, now every one of those miracles that I did, and think of the miracles. You can think of them, right? The water turned to wine was the first one. And many after miracles of healing, multiplying the bread and the fishes, right? All these miracles... Jesus says, God the Father gave me those works and he gave them as a testimony. And you should hear that testimony because that, every miracle I did was God the Father pointing at me and saying, this is my son. This is the Messiah. This is the one that you should hear and believe. So Jesus has the second witness and it's all the different miracles that he did. And in verse 37 where our Bible says, they gave us the subheading witness of the Father. That's certainly correct. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. And Jesus says, now you didn't see a bodily form. It's not that Jesus stood before you in bodily form and said, this is the Messiah. Nor is it the case that you heard a voice, right, in verse 37. You didn't hear a voice. Jesus, God didn't speak from heaven. Although at, at one time, remember, God did speak from heaven, right, at his baptism, right? But assuming these Jewish leaders were not there at the time, God did not speak directly to them with a voice, saying, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah, this is the one you need to follow, right? But he gave me to do these miracles. And that's how God the Father has testified about me, that I am his Messiah, I am his son. Well, then, to get to the purpose of our sermon this evening, which is in verse 39, the third witness and this is what we hope to consider this evening. In verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these, these scriptures, that testify about me. Now, what scriptures did Jesus have? Right? The Bible that Jesus had at the time would have been the Old Testament. Would have been the Old Testament. And Jesus says about the Old Testament, remember, that's the question we started with here, right? What did Jesus say about the Old Testament? He said, those Old Testament scriptures testify about me. They are a witness to me. They are another testimony to the identity of my person. And you Jewish leaders, you study those scriptures so painstakingly. You go over every word, every syllable. Why, the rabbis had every letter counted. They knew the middle word of the Old Testament. They knew every statistic about the Old Testament. They studied it far more closely than anybody here has ever done. And they missed the one. Jesus says you miss the one of whom the scriptures speak. You're so busy counting letters and syllables. You're so busy reading and memorizing 
There were rabbis who had the whole Old Testament memorized. Imagine that. The whole Old Testament memorized. But you miss the one that it's pointing to. You miss me. You're unwilling, he says in verse 40, to come to me so that you may have life. Three witnesses, and you miss them all. Well, congregation, for our purposes this evening, then, we we see here very clearly that Jesus is teaching that the whole Old Testament is pointing to him as the mediator between God and man. Jesus is the one who stands between a holy God and a guilty people. So all of that, congregation, really, just to get us to verse 39, Jesus is in the Old Testament, and all the Old Testament scriptures point to him. Now, our catechism, then, is certainly teaching the truth here, isn't it? That already the gospel was revealed in paradise. That's the first thing the catechism gives us. So let's consider this then. First, God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. And where did that happen in the gospel? Well, you find that in Genesis 3, verse 15. When God placed a curse on the serpent, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between the seed of the serpent and between of the seed of the woman, there's going to be enmity. God is going to place an enmity, a hatred, a hostility between them. And in fact, that hostility is going to be carried out over the generations until finally the day comes when the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Now again, that's just page one in the book, isn't it? That's just page one. It doesn't tell us much, does it? It tells us only about the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, and that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. But it's just page one, isn't it? It's just a glimmer. It's just an opening of the door, ever so slightly, you might say. But it's certainly true what our catechism teaches us. The gospel was already revealed to Adam and Eve in paradise. But secondly, the catechism goes on to say that he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets. Now here again, there's way more than I can possibly consider, but let me just begin with the most obvious highlights in the history of Abraham, right? When God made a covenant with Abraham, he said, Abraham, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now you might say that's kind of like another page opened in the book. Another chapter goes open. Another notch, you might say, in the gospel timeline is Abraham. Abraham, in your seed, from your children, from your descendants, there will come one who will bring blessing to all the nations, to all the families of the earth. That's in Genesis 12. You can think about David, because God opened another chapter in that book to David. And God said to David, there's going to be a son of David sitting on the throne of Jerusalem forever and ever. There will never come a time when there is not a son of David sitting on the throne of Israel. 2 Samuel 7, you can read about that. Well, now, of course, we know historically that literally that wasn't the case, right? Finally, the actual sons of David came to an end. And they weren't sitting on the throne anymore. Jerusalem was sacked and burned to the ground. But Matthew announces that there's another son of David, right? The Gospels love to announce on the very first pages of their Gospel accounts. So-and-so was the son of so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. Who was the son of David? 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. And of his throne, there is never an end. The prophets prophesied of a new covenant that was coming. A new time period when God would make a new covenant with his people, not like the covenant he made with them at Mount Sinai, but a new covenant established on better promises and with a mediator. And when Jesus sat down to institute the Lord's Supper, what did he say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood or sealed by my blood. A new covenant. So again, you see how the the Old Testament speaks about Christ on every page. I'm just giving you the highlights. And then our, our catechism says in the third place that it was foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Now that's not difficult to understand, is it? That this covenant that God made with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, with all its laws and with all its regulations and with all its commandments, it filled the people with a sense of guilt. And, and it was a, a burden, says Paul, that neither we nor our fathers could bear. But there in that, you might say, legal dispensation, that, that time of, of, of being under that law, God gave them sacrifices, pictures of atonement. Pictures of how their sins could be forgiven through the death of a substitute. And so there again, all that blood that was shed in the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. You could think also not even of the bloody ceremonies, but also of the water purification ceremonies, right? Where the water was sprinkled on people for their own purification. All this was one large pointing to Christ. There's one to come who will cleanse you of your sin and purify your body. Purify your soul of moral filth. I gave you that verse from Galatians 3 and verse 19, which says, where Paul asked the question, why then was the law? Why then was there this time period when God made this covenant which was so difficult to keep? And Paul says in Galatians 3.19, it was added because of transgressions. Because of transgressions. In other words, God gave the children of Israel this covenant to show them their weakness to show them their inability to keep the commands and the statutes and the regulations he had given them. But for our purposes this evening, congregation, that even in that time period, God gave his people a picture of the Lamb of God who would one day take away the sins of the world. And the fourth and final then is the coming of the Lamb of God, right? And that's what we saw two weeks ago when we said that John the baptizer stood and he said, Behold, After all that time, after all the waiting, it's over. The Lamb of God is come. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. Praise God, he's here. So that's the gospel timeline. Jesus said that the Old Testament testified about him. And we see that across the whole history of the Old Testament. It's pointing to Christ. Now, congregation, as I make an application on this, I would like to make a theological application, a practical application, and an experiential application. This theological application may seem a bit technical. And maybe none of you have heard of this idea of dispensationalism. But it's very common. It's very common uh, amongst Christians. Again, I say Christians, right? These are not unbelievers, right? These are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we have this disagreement about how to understand that gospel timeline. Now, of course, as Reformed believers, we have no problem with the word dispensation, right? Very clearly, there were dispensations in times of biblical history. 
But now herein lies the difference because the dispensationalists, as they're often called, right, and, and these are quite common in, in Baptist and evangelical churches, uh, but you will find dispensationalists. And what they teach is that these individual dispensations, as, they, as you go through biblical history, that each of them are distinct and unique in the sense that God gives to each time period and to the people within that time period a unique test. He tests them, they fail, then that dispensation comes to an end and a completely new dispensation begins. And that's important, and I want you to see that this evening, right? That when one dispensation ends, a completely new one begins. And therein lies the problem as reformed under, with our Reformed understanding of Scripture. Because the dispensationalists would say, for instance, and, and they'll, they'll use this terminology, they'll use this terminology that from the, from the creation of the world to the time the Adam and Eve were expelled, expelled from paradise, that was the, the dispensation of innocence, as they call it. And that during that time they had a test, right? They had to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they failed that test. That dispensation came to an end. It was thrown out and an entirely new one began. And then the next one they say, if I understand this correctly, was the, uh, the dispensation of conscience. And during this time, God tested them by obedience to their own conscience because, of course, they didn't have the word of God. So they were tested by this test of obeying their own conscience. They had to listen to the voice that was within them. Well, that dispensation preceded the Tower of Babel. It came to a terrible end. They failed. And that dispensation came to an end. It's completely done now. And an entirely new dispensation began with Abraham, but then they continue. Then a new dispensation when the coming of Christ, and a new dispensation when the millennium begins, and so on. Now what's the problem with that understanding of biblical history or of the gospel timeline as we're talking about it this evening? Well, the problem is, dear friends, that the Bible teaches us that the dispensations grow into each other. In fact, you will often hear the word used as... Uh, organic, which is a beautiful word because it's like an organism. It's like an acorn. And it grows. And it sprouts. And it becomes larger and larger and larger. Not that one dispensation begins, continues, ends, and is thrown out completely and an entirely new one begins, but that these dispensations grow into each other. So that what God said to Abraham, well, let's go to the beginning. What God said to Adam Genesis 3, verse 15, is that acorn. It's that seed, right? And like I explained it to you, it's like a chapters of a book. They're gradually unfolded. But then the, the, the organism, you might say, becomes larger with Noah. God makes a covenant with Noah. I haven't talked about that this evening, but that's a covenant as well. And then the plant grows larger. You might say the branches begin to spread in Abraham. And God reveals another page in his covenant book about the salvation and about the mediator. And these these dispensations grow into each other. And then God has the dispensation that he makes with the children of Israel. And they have the law that is given to them. And it's not that the old dispensation is finished and thrown out and an entirely new one begins, but no, they grow into each other. And they evolve, if I can use the word evolve this evening. right? They, they grow into each other and, and grow. Now, the one exception to that, I would say, is the dispensation that God made with the children of Israel that dispensation, right, that time period, right, was completely brought to an end with the coming of Christ. The law was thrown out. But even then, we see a great deal of, uh, or, or we see some things, right, even the sacrifices, as I've talked about, right, 
There was continuity there. And there was a sacrifice, and there was the fulfillment of that sacrifice at the coming of Christ. Now where this becomes quite uh, influential is like, say, in a discussion on baptism. When you discuss the issue of infant baptism with dispensationalists, right, they, they look at baptism as something that was completely new and unique to the time of the New Testament. Because after all, that's the only time that you ever read of a baptism. But as Reformed people, what do we always do? We always say, well, what about the Old Testament history? What about the covenants that God made with His people there and the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament? Well, you see that in a dispensationalist, that Old Covenant is, is completely done away with and, and is finished. It's, it's really just history at this point. And it has nothing to say to us now. Now, I, I'm misrepresenting them because, of course... They, will, they, have, they, they believe the Old Testament. They, hold, they have a very high view of Scripture. And they'll even preach from the Old Testament. But their system, the system of dispensationalism, I believe to be erroneous on that point. That, that, the, that these dispensations come to a complete end and then something entirely new begins. And so naturally, if you're asking, well, who then should be baptized? You would just look at the New Testament and you would say, well, it's always a believer. Although you have families in there too that are baptized, but by and large it seems to always be believers, so it must just be believers that we are to baptize. But we as Reformed people always scratch our head, right? And we're saying, well, what about the Old Testament? What about the sign of the covenant under the, under the other dispensations, you know? That Abraham was commanded to give the sign of the covenant to his children. Well, say the dispensationalist, that was his dispensation. That was that time period. And that's now long past. And, and that doesn't have anything. So when God said circumcise the, uh, the children on the eighth day, that doesn't say anything to us as New Testament believers, except insofar as that it's, it's history and that God revealed that to us. Do you see something? How theologically, this has a, has a big, uh, plays a big role in how people understand the teaching of the New Testament. By the way, it also uh, affects the preaching of the Old Testament. Now here, you can even think of someone uh, as good a preacher as John MacArthur who we have great respect for in our circles, and I have great respect for. And yet when you go and look at the preaching of John MacArthur, you see that his preaching is very much centered on the New Testament. Very much on the New Testament. Now, does he ever preach on the Old Testament? Of course he does. But the, but the percentage is far greater, and the focus is far greater on the New Testament than on the Old Testament. And in fact, you find that uh, in many churches that have a very high view of the Bible that the Old Testament is often very neglected from the pulpit. And I believe largely because this system of dispensationalism has taken hold in the minds of many people. And they see the dispensations in the Old Testament as something that is finished, and entirely finished, and belonging to those people, but having nothing to say to us now. Well, in the Reformed understanding, we have a more organic, and again, I don't mean to just use a, a difficult word, but it really is a beautiful word. It's an organism. And God builds up his... He slowly reveals the gospel as a tree grows from a tiny seed into a full-blown tree. Well, I leave then. Well, I didn't actually say about the uh, Galatians 3, verse 15 and 19, but I already referenced that text. But I'll just pass that by for now and simply say that in Galatians 3, 15, Paul understands that we are participants in Abraham's covenant. I believe I preached on that here before. We are participants in Abraham's covenant. Far from that being a dispensation that came and went, on the contrary, Paul teaches us that we, that the gospel dispensation right now, 
is a restoration of Abraham's dispensation. That we are participants in Abraham's covenant. That the gospel which we preach from this pulpit is the gospel of the Abrahamic covenant. Again, I'll let you read Galatians 3, verses 15 through 19, where you can see that, and where Paul argues that point. Well, I move then to a practical application. And in a sense, uh, the theology that I've already given to you in the previous is, is exactly what we, I hope to say, practically. That means, dear friends, that when you pick up the Scriptures, it doesn't matter where you turn in this book, it speaks about Jesus. We, we often chuckle when our children answer every theological question with Jesus. But, but they know more than they say, don't they? Because that's what Jesus said. These scriptures speak and testify about me. Whether you're reading the book of Genesis, whether you're reading the book of Psalms, this is an appropriate question to ask yourself. What does this chapter teach me about Jesus? Let's just take an example for a minute. We had a sermon this morning on Genesis chapter 1. And we talked about the creation of humans. To the best of my knowledge, I never said the name of Christ in that sermon. Does Genesis 1 speak about Christ? Does the creation of humans speak about Christ? You know, when I thought about this, it's, it's, it's amazing when you begin to ask yourself this question, how differently you'll see the scriptures. Because think of what I said this morning, dear friends, that we can only find happiness in this world when we make God's purpose for creating us our purpose. Does that sound like anybody you know about in the New Testament? Is that not the life blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is that not exactly what he did from the beginning of his birth to the end of his life? He made the purpose of God his purpose. And he did it perfectly without any sin, without any deviation to the right or to the left. We read it in John 5. That's why I wanted to read John 5. Because over and over again, Jesus says, I came to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is the perfect man, the perfect human. Why? Because he made God's purpose his own. Now that's just one example but no matter what you read, no matter where you were in the Bible, and I could ask you that, where are you in your Bible reading today? What chapter did you read today? On Monday, on Tuesday, young men, where are you in your Bible reading? What chapter is it? Let's open to it. Where is Jesus there? You can ask yourself that question. You might not see it right away. You might have to ask your mother or your father. You might have to you can call me, and we'll talk about it. A preacher is so happy to discuss that with his people. But Jesus is there. You can be sure of it. And that's so appropriate then, that when you read the scriptures, you find Jesus there. And that's not me talking tonight. That's not Reformed theology generally. Jesus said, they testify of me. Now let's read the Bible in that way. I know one of my seminary professors wrote a book, and it's called The Jesus Lens. Isn't that an interesting title? The Jesus Lens. Why? Because in that book, he goes through every book of the Bible and explains how this book teaches us about Jesus. 
Isn't that interesting? What a, what a Christ-honoring way to read the Bible with the Jesus lens. And I hope that we may read the Bible in that way. But congregation, I bring to the last point then an experiential application. Because you know, God has taken us to a place in our study of the catechism that has been a dark and hopeless place. It was dark. It was, it, it, he brought us to the law of God. He brought us to see our sin and guilt. We saw the curse of God as a... And remember, how I, I, I express that as if it were a dam holding back the waters of God's curse that is about to break upon our heads and to crush us for a never-ending eternity. That is what we have deserved. That is the place, congregation, in this church where we've come along the path of life. To that awful place where we stand under the judgments of God and where we have to acknowledge before God that this is what we deserve. And yet God in His mercy has cracked open the door, hasn't He? Bit by bit, that there is a mediator who will stand before us. There is a mediator, congregation, there is the cross of Christ that stands before the wrath and the curse of God. So that instead of that curse falling on us, it falls on Him. And how necessary it is, congregation, that what was true in the history of Israel, in the history of the Bible, that God revealed the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way to find salvation from sin, how necessary that is, that that become now an experiential reality in our own life. That what was true in the history of Israel become true in the history of you and me. That we also come to that place where we acknowledge our sin and guilt before God. That we also come to that place, congregation, where we confess that God would do us no injustice if He cast us from His presence forever and forever. And that we come to that place where we confess that our own works and our own merits cannot take us one step closer to God. But that there is a Lamb of God. There is a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have you seen Him, congregation, on the path of life as we've walked it these last weeks? Have you seen Him? Have you seen Him a little and then more? until finally the full light shines. Behold the Lamb of God. We had to confess. We sing that in the Psalms, don't we? We sing it in Psalm, in Psalm 84. I sink in depths where none can stand. Deep waters o'er me roll. But we also stand before the cross of Christ. And hear the glad announcement of John the Baptist and the glad announcement of all Scripture. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We started this evening service by hearing Isaiah. And Isaiah was gifted by God to preach this gospel with such eloquence. And I want to take you back to Isaiah 55. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Do you see Jesus in those words, my friends? Do you see the Savior there? Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Congregation, what a glorious privilege it is 
to set before you the cross of Jesus Christ this evening and to say, come. No matter what sin you may have committed this evening, no matter how dark might be your life in the past, no matter all the things that might keep you from the cross of Christ, still the cross is set here in all its beauty and in all its glory. And God extends also the arms to you this evening for the first time or by renewal. And he says, come, come. And you may find here at this cross bread, wine, milk, without money and without cost. That's the glorious message of the gospel. I pray, congregation, that we would hear it afresh, that we would hear it with new ears, that we would hear it with faith, and that it would become the very center of all of our life and living. And that we would be Christ-centered Christians from beginning to end. May God grant it for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we have had to cry out when we saw our sin and guilt as presented to us by the catechism, that we sink in depths where none can stand, that the deep waters of your curse were ready to roll over us. But Lord, we fly to the cross of Christ this evening, and we find in that blood, in those wounds, a full and a free forgiveness from all our sins. Oh God, I pray that everyone here, from the youngest to the oldest, would find a place at that cross, that by thy grace they would come there, that they would take hold of it, and they would find a full and a free salvation without money and without cost. Wine and milk, bread that satisfies. Oh God, grant that none of us would miss it. Grant that if there are here people who are spending their money on something that's not bread, walking down a pathway that will not lead them to happiness and salvation, that they would get off that path and that they would come on this good path, this path of life which the Heidelberg Catechism has set before us and which your word teaches us that these scriptures... Testify of me. O God, grant that we might not be as the Pharisees who searched the scriptures in such detail and yet missed the Savior. They missed the truth of the one who came declaring life, who said, Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. Lord, will you remember us then in your mercy? Bless us this week. Grant that we would take this word with us in the coming week and that it might be clear that we have been with Christ, that we serve Christ, that we hope one day to die in Him, that all our hope and all our life is centered in Him, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, and He is the Lamb of God who illumines the great city, the new Jerusalem, where we hope one day to live to a never-ending eternity. Lord, will you bless us then and remember us in His blessed name. In Jesus' name, amen.